Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Let's remember to enunciate. All right. Welcome to episode 67 of Musically Challenge, your heaping helping of music, trivia, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about this week. Okay. All right. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and with me, as always, is Chad Knight. How's it going? Good, good. So Chad and I were thinking on what we could do for a topic this week. We poured over the calendar thinking, shit, we got to pick something. We got to record, and the deadline's coming up. Little did we realize that the answer was staring us in the face the whole time. The calendar. Ah, so it was literally staring us in the face. Exactly. What does it mean? It, it, it means that we're going to use that for our theme and do songs that have days of the week in their title. Rather than go and just wreck one day of the week, as there are a ton of Saturday songs, for example, we're going to just do one song per day per person. So because We're going to wreck the entire week. Exactly, for you, so you're welcome. So since we're doing, we're currently doing seven songs per person, that actually works out great Sunday through Saturday. Famously, actually. The only other restriction that we had was one song per person per day in the week, and otherwise there's no limitations. It doesn't matter the genre, and because of which it means there's probably going to be songs from all across the board. Yeah, I think there really is. So get out your day planner and check us off for your Thursday to-do list while we get the show started. Fair enough. So how's things going? Can't complain. It's spring, finally. I know, right? The sun's finally coming out, and if you'd be hard-pressed to... If you told me we had two feet of snow a week ago, I'd call you a liar. But I wouldn't be lying. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I, I'd be intrigued to see what the Dells look like right now with all the melting. Oh, yeah. It would have to be interesting. I mean, everything's high, but thankfully it's been freezing at night so that it oh, doesn't we're continue under, to... We're under a flood advisor right now. Are we? Yeah. I have been for about that. a day or so, yeah. No, I didn't even hear that. So I'd be intrigued to see how, like I said, how that melts. I live on top of a hill. <laughs> and I live on a hill, which means it rolls down. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we're going to go ahead and start this off with our Liquored Up. Yay, drinking. Yes, exactly. This week we're going to do a Milwaukee Brewing Company, which um, it's mkbrewing.com. It's a oat, it's called Oatboard. It says that's local flavor. It is a cream ale. Well, I hope it doesn't taste like the Wisconsin River. Well, it, it, up here it's 5%, and I would prefer it up here than the river down by Milwaukee. Well, fair enough. Because, again, shit rolls downhill. <laughs> Let's give it a run. Not what I was expecting off of the smell. Mm-mm. No, I like that. It's got a got kind of a nutty flavor, and it doesn't linger. I'm getting cream. I really am. Not for me or not, mister. <laughs> Stop being gross. No, I like this. Um, it's got a good, like I said, it's got a bit of a nutty flavor to it. I know there's that creamy background. It's called Outboard, and I think it just, honestly, if you're riding on the lake in a boat, it'd be a good beer to drink. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... When I smelled it, I expected something that is kind of... Stinky? Bitter mm-hmm. on the back end, and it's not. We'll see if that builds as we drink more of it, but... But it doesn't it's... linger. That's that's what I love about this, is that yeah. once it's done, you get a little bit of a hint to it, but then it just goes away. Yeah, it's not it's not bad at all. So should we... Uh, well, let's rate it. Let's rate it. I'm going to go up. I'm going to go bar. All right. Because I don't think there's enough flavor to it. 
Okay, I can understand that. That makes sense. So that would be my only thing about it is I like what flavor's there. It just should be stronger. Okay. All right. So again, we're doing weeks, and do you want to start out? Sure. Why not? All right. So what do you got? So I've got Sunday Blood. Oh, of whoa, Sun whoa, whoa! Time out! Time out! Damn it! Haha! Trivia. Damn it! You know, and here's the thing. You have to stop saying. I think you're gonna get this. This is an, This is one that you had better get. Oh, this is a, I had better get. Yes. Okay. This is an underhand pitch. Okay, what am I standing at right now? Oh, crap. Um, let me look. I think it's 19 and 18, if well, I let's remember see. correctly. You got last week's wrong, which would have put you at 19 and 18. Okay. All right, so yes, you're at 19 and 18 right now, and I have a feeling you're going to go to 20. Well, we'll see. Let's see how well you remember last episode. So long ago. <laughs> what is the date that MTV went live? Bonus points if you can name the very first video that was played, the artist and the song. <laughs> Did I not tell you this was an underhand, especially being so yeah, what we talked yeah, about? Yeah, I'm just going to jot some stuff down here. Uh, and by the way, when I say date, I mean the whole date, not oh. just the year. But if you get the if you get the video, it'll kind of maybe work out. So, so anyway, the actual, the full calendar date, MTV went live, back when it was actually music, instead of... For, you know, six weeks or something. Instead of real world and Jersey Shore bullshit. And you get a bonus point if you can name the very first video who played artist and song. So it might be a wash. We'll see. Now can I start? Yes. Now you're allowed. All right. So Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2 is a song done by the Irish rock band U2. It is the opening track from the 1983 album War. and was released as the album's third single on March 21st, 1983 in Germany and the Netherlands. Sunday Bloody Sunday is noted for its militaristic drumbeat, harsh guitar, and mel melodic harmonies. One of U2's most overly political songs, its lyrics describe the horror felt by an observer of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Mainly focused on the Bloody Sunday incident in Derry, where British troops shot and killed unarmed civ civil rights protesters and bystanders. At the same time, the lyrics reject hate and revenge as a response, as noted in the line, There's many lost, but tell me who has won. Along with New Year's Day, the song helped U2 reach a wider listening audience. It was generally well received by critics on the album's release. The song has remained a staple of U2's live concerts. During its earliest performance, the song created controversy. Lead singer Bono reasserted the song's anti-sectarian violence message to his audience for many years. Today it is considered one of U2's signature songs and is one of the band's most performed tracks. Critics rate it among the best political protest songs and has been covered by over a dozen artists. It was named the 272nd Greatest Song by Rolling Stones on their list of the 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Let's listen to Sunday Bloody Sunday. are an Irish rock band from Dublin formed in 1976. The group consists of Bono, lead vocals and rhythm guitar, The Edge, lead guitar, keyboards and backing vocals, Adam Clayton, bass guitar, and Larry Mullen Jr. on drums and percussion. Initially rooted in post-punk, U2's musical style evolved throughout their career, yet has maintained an authentic and anthemic 
sound built on Bono's expressive vocals and the edges of effects-based guitar textures. Their lyrics, often embellished with spiritual imagery, focus on personal and socio-political themes. Popular for their live performances, the group has staged several ambitious and elaborate tours over their career. U2 has released 14 studio albums and are on one of the world's best-selling music artists in history, having sold more than 170 million records worldwide. They have won 22 Grammy Awards, more than any other band, and in 2005, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility. Rolling Stone ranked U2 at number 22 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Throughout their career as a band and as individuals, they have campaigned for human rights and social justice causes, including Amnesty International, Jubilee 2000, The One Data Campaigns, Product Red, War Child, and Music Rising. Now, the song itself is one of the first songs I knowingly heard from U2, and honestly, even before I knew what it was about, it hooked me. Now, I do really like U2, and I know Lou's not the biggest fan of U2, but it is what it is. The song, from the drums to the guitars and the vocals, as far as I'm concerned, this is the total package when it comes to a U2 song. I'm I'm a greatest hits fan of okay. U2. I, like, I think I actually own the, I think they call it like 18 singles or something. Okay. I don't hate their music. I think Bono's a pretentious dink. I would agree with that. And I think The Edge is full of himself to call himself The Edge, because we all know there is only one Edge. And it certainly ain't him, but that's besides the point. No, I don't hate the song. I like other ones better. Like New Year's Day, I think, is way better than this one. But then again, too, I mean, it's just my own personal preference. You know, my personal preference is the Joshua Tree. That, to me, that is the pinnacle of their career. That is. Oh, the album-wise? Yeah. Oh, it was a great album. In yeah. fact, I, I, that one, I actually own that one and the, great, the singles Greatest Hits. Because right. that's pretty much everything you need to know except for the shit that they automatically downloaded onto my itunes account see and that's why i don't use apple shit because fuck them yeah but then you would have gotten a free album out of u2 that <laughs> nobody wanted that's that's why they were giving it away for free so, and you know and there's there's u2 for you it's a decent song if you listen to, if you just listen to music i don't listen to protest songs i mean honestly the last time i got into protest type music was like the stuff from the vietnam war stuff like war from uh edwin star or right. things like that the video was strange, but then again, what wasn't in the 80s? And if, again, as you mentioned, it's referring to the civil unrest in Ireland. Um, there's two different incidents I think it talks about, but either yeah. way, it's a it's a decent song. It really is. It's not the worst out there. It's not the best out there. It's just, it's U2. It's old U2, which I think is good U2, because the newer stuff kind of got... Yeah, you got to pick and choose the new stuff. Right. So, what do you got for your Sunday? Sunday, we're going to go with a little Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees. Okay. Now, the Monkees were an American pop rock band formed in 1965 of Mickey Dolenz, Peter Tork, Davy Jones, the, the, the other Davy Jones, right, and Michael Nesbeth. Filmmaker Bob Raffleson wanted to do a TV series that was a musical sitcom about a band that was doing all kinds of wacky things to make themselves stand out in the music industry. He had the idea originally in 1962, but couldn't sell it. In 1965, he and Burt Schneider revived it after seeing 1964's A Hard Day's Night. Okay. Davy Jones was signed right away, and they put an ad in the Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter to cast the rest of the band. Unpopularly, Jones was picked to sing lead, even though it was pretty evident the rest of the band, particularly Nesmith, stated that Mickey Dolenz's voice gave the Monkees their signature sound. Their debut album, 1966's The Monkees, self-titled, and the 1967 follow-up, More of the Monkees, were meant to be basically soundtracks for the show. Shortly after that, Don Kirshner was forcibly dismissed 
<laughs> I, I love that term. And the Monkees were given opportunity to be a real band instead of working with other musical talents. The group did have instrument and singing talent and were now allowed to exercise that talent and tour. They continued working, touring, recording, and acting, but tensions were rising. Peter Tork quit the band in 1969 and bought out his contract. Shortly after that, in 1970, Mike Nesmith bailed as well, and finally in 74, the band called it quits. Starting in 86, however, there were multiple reunions and revivals. MTV and Nickelodeon showed their videos and the TV show respectively, which helped them get their career back in the forefront. Then, in the early 1990s, Jones and Dolans were keeping the name alive and still working on material with the band. Without Nesmith, they toured multiple times. 2001 tour and another hiatus followed, and then we moved to 2010, where they started talking about a 45th anniversary tour that began May 12th, 2011. They took, a two th they took a short break in fall of 2011 due to a business glitch, but started up again after the passing of Davy Jones in 2012. Nesmith came back with the surviving three and toured until 2014. Starting in 2015, Dolans and Torque continued to tour as the Monkees without Nesmith, but left an open invitation, which he took on for one last concert in... Pantang's Theater in Hollywood in 2016. They've all worked on solo material from then to current with Torque and Dolans performing as a duo. The Monkees have released 12 studio albums that have spawned 19 singles. <laughs> one per album, basically. Yeah. And Pleasant Valley Sunday was one of those. Let's go ahead and um, or listen to a Pleasant Sunday song. Another Pleasant Valley So Pleasant Valley Sunday was a Gary Coffin and Carol King pen song that the Monkees put out on their 1967 album Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones LTD. The song is a social commentary about suburban life. This is a classic boy band pop from the 60s. I mean, I can picture the band from the TV show, which I watched all the time on Nick and Knight. Who didn't? Oh, I loved that show. Yeah. It was so funny. Just running away from somebody, the police, bad guys. It was just like Scooby and the gang, but real life. Right, right. Um, I enjoy the Monkees. I think they're a fun band. It's a shame that there was so much infighting that happened, but they were an entertaining act to, to do. Now, I said, okay, number one, The Monkees. I love The Monkees. Number two, great music and a happy song about living in suburbia. You know, with kind of a Stepford Wives kind of thing, but, you know, good for you. It's almost kind of like a backhanded compliment, sort of. Yeah, yeah. You, what, what I said? Mm-mm. Oh. The song itself, it's not... Super awesome, great, like the best thing ever, like our house is a very, very, very fine house type right. thing, but it has enough of a, like a back-end edge to it that it's kind of a backhanded compliment, the song is. Yeah, but every time I see the the mocked-up videos for these, it's just very step -wivey, Stepford Wives kind of... Oh, yeah, it's, 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 like the, <laughs> it's like the 50s bomb site where you see like all the houses that look exactly the same with, you know, the mannequins and the lawn and like the same car in every driveway yeah, and everything. yeah. So, so what do you got for Monday? All right, for Monday, I have Blue Monday by Fats Domino. So, Blue Monday is a song originally written by Dave Bartholomew, first recorded by Smiley Lewis and issued as a single in January 1954 on Imperial Records. The single, with a slow rocking beat, features an instrumental electric guitar solo by Lewis. It was later popularized in a recording by Fats Domino in 1956, also on Imperial, on which the songwriting credit was shared between him and Bartholomew. How does that happen? You take a song that somebody else wrote, you sing it, and then you get writing credit? He had a good lawyer. I guess. Most later versions have credited Bartholomew and Domino as co-writers. The baritone saxophone solo is by 
Herbert Hardesty. Domino's version was featured in the 1956 film The Girl Can't Help It. It became one of the earliest rhythm and blues songs to make the Billboard magazine pop music charts, peaking at number five and reaching the number one spot on the R&B bestsellers chart. It reached number 23 on the UK singles chart. It was included on the 1957 album This Is Fats and the 1959 album Fats Domino Sings 12 Million Records. The song title was used for a 2006 biography of of Domino by Rick Coleman. Are you having a Blue Monday? Blue Monday, how are you? Blue Monday, got to work, plant a sleeve all day. He'll come Tuesday. So Antoine Dominique Fats Domino Jr. was an American pianist and singer-songwriter. One of the pioneers of rock and roll music, Domino sold more than 65 million records between 1955 and 1960. He had 11 top 10 hits. His humility and shyness may be one of the reasons his contribution to the genre has been overlooked. During his career, Domino had 35 records in the U.S. Billboard Top 40, and five of his pre-1955 records sold more than a million copies, being certified gold. His musical style was based on traditional rhythm and blues, accompanied by saxophones, bass, piano, electric guitar, and drums. His 1949 release, The Fat Man, is widely regarded as the first million-selling rock and roll record. Fats passed away in October 2017 at the age of 89. He gave us 50 albums from 1955's Rock and Rollin' with Fats Domino to 2006's Alive and Kickin'. The song is a classic R&B song, horns, pianos, and the vocals of Fats Domino. Nothing wrong with it. I love his baritone voice and the fact that he was doing this when it wasn't what was being done and he was doing this during the Jim Crow years it's just amazing the fact that he made such a mark in an era like that mm-hmm. the dude's got to sound all his own I mean he rocks the 50s style doo-wop perfectly I mean yep. there's really not a whole lot else to say about it agreed what do you got all right so my Monday is going to be a little manic the manic Monday by the bangle the bangles are an all-female American rock band formed in 1981 Susanna Hoffs uh, I had such a crush on her when I was a kid and sister Vicky and Debbie Peterson formed the trio known as the Bangs. Maybe because of the 80s hair? Who knows? Or because they like to bang? Uh, that could very well be, too. And Annette Zelinksis, if that's how you pronounce it, Annette Z, how about that, came on to help out the vocals, and in 1984, they released their debut album all over the place. It was around that time that they changed to the Bangles, dropping, well, changed to Bangles, actually, dropping the and adding L-E-S to avoid legal issues. Annette Z left to do her own thing, and they picked up former Runaways member Michael Steele. Or is that Michelle? I'm not sure. It's spelled Michael. The Runaways it was an all-girls band. Right. So, but It would be Michelle. I would, well, I would assume. But it's spelled Michael, so that's just stupid. Maybe you misspelled it. No, look it up. Anyways, they continued to rock and tour at one time even with Cyndi Lauper as an opening act. All it wasn't was great, though, as for whatever reason, perhaps she was the best-looking bangle, the media began singling her out as the lead singer or leader of the group, and the label almost solely rejected other singles and releasing singles with her on lead, even though the singing was evenly divided on all the songs that they co-wrote. After 1988's Everything, it all broke down, and the members all went their own ways. They reformed in 1998 to do a song for Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me soundtrack, and started a reunion tour in 2000, after which they went back to the studio to do more recording. They're still active as the original Peterson Hoffs trio, and occasionally has Annette Z show up to play with them. The Bangles have released five studio albums that have spawned 22 singles. Wow. Let's go ahead and listen to some Manic Monday. These are the days when you wish your bed was already made. It's just another 
Dramatic Monday is a single written by Prince, who is known as Christopher, and was included on their 1986 Different Light album. It talks about a lady who's running late for work and wishing it was still was Sunday because that's my fun day. I think Saturday is more of a fun day. Sunday is kind of a, oh, shit, I gotta work tomorrow day. <laughs> Unless you have Monday off, so I don't get it, but maybe they just need something to rhyme with Monday. There you or, go. So, apparently the song was offered to Apollonia 6, and there's a YouTube version of that band singing it. Apparently, and it's evident that Prince did the right thing by offering it to the Bengals because the Apollonia one is terrible. Is it? Oh my god, is it bad. I love this song. This is another classic 80s song. Um, the Bengals are, between the Bengals and the Go-Go's are pretty much female 80s in a nutshell. Yeah, it's, it's a great song by one of the premier girl groups of the 80s. This song about getting up and ready for work Monday morning, we all wish we didn't have to, but when we do, it makes for a manic and crazy Monday. I love the song, and I could listen to it whenever. This is not one of those songs like, well, I really need to be in the mood for that song. No, no, this is a, this is a perfect anytime song. It's awesome. It's even more awesome on Monday as you're driving to work. <laughs> it's but, better when you're driving home from work, actually. Well, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but, you know, I don't know. It's just, it, it's great. I, I never, the Bengals also did Walk Like an Egyptian, they right? They did indeed. Yeah, okay. And Eternal Flame. Yep, Okay. So, yeah, I just, I love their music. It, they weren't hard on the eyes, so. No, and I can see, like I said, I can see why they put Susanna Hoffs in the lead, because she was that, she was the brunette one with the big brown eyes. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> All right, I'm going to move on before Lou gets too involved over okay. there. Okay. So, on to Tuesday. We're going to talk about Groovy Tuesday by the Smithereens. Now, this is a kind of a flower power kind of song. Please, as you all listen, realize that there were not a ton of songs about Tuesday. <laughs> really, it's a song called Groovy and it's about flower power? Imagine that. There isn't much out there about the song. It kind of makes me want to take off my socks and shoes and walk across broken glass because I think it would hurt less. Ouch, dude. So let's just take a listen. So the Smithereens are an American rock band from Carteret, New Jersey. The group formed in 1980 with members Pat Denizio, Jim Babjack, Mike Mazaros, and Dennis Dicken. The original lineup continued until 2006 when Mazaros left the band and Severo Jornaxian took over on bass guitar. Hey, look at that. I got the one with the screwed up names. Yeah, and they're all from New Jersey somehow. Yeah. The band are perhaps best known for a string of modest hits in the late 1980s and early 1990s, including Only a Memory, A Girl Like You, and Too Much Passion. The Smithereens have collaborated with numerous musicians, both in the studio, Belinda Carlisle, Julian Lennon, Lou Reed, Suzanne Vega, and live with Graham Packard and the Kinks. The band's name comes from a Yosemite Sam catchphrase, Varmint, I'm gonna blow you to smithereens. <laughs> and with that... What do you got to say? You know, I knew these guys from the song A Girl Like You, because I actually yeah. really, really enjoy that song. That's a good song. Um, this one I wasn't a huge fan of. <laughs> this was a, we got to have a Tuesday song, so might as well listen to this, and let's move on to Wednesday. You know, sometimes with, with doing things like this, especially when we do sets like this where, you know, you got to come up with a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, mm -hmm. sometimes you got to shoehorn a little bit. You do, and, and, and especially when there's not that many choices to pick from. Right, and Tuesday's one of those days, Wednesday's kind of one of those days, even though the Wednesday song I have is a lot better than the Tuesday song I have, but 
What do you got for Tuesday? For for Tuesday, we are. Um, I've got Ruby Tuesday by Roll the Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones, if you really don't need much of an introduction, but I'm going to read it anyway. Okay. Because I took the time to write it, so damn it, you are going to listen to it. <laughs> so anyways, they're a Brit rock band formed in 1962. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were childhood friends and formed a, bang, a band called the Blues Boys in late, late 61. The band was named Spur of the Moment when on a phone call to Jazz News, a journalist asked the band's name and there was a Muddy Waters LP on the floor with one of the tracks being Rolling Stone. Easy enough. They started getting a following and in 64 released their debut album that was self-titled in the UK and the US was called The Rolling Stones, England's Newest Hitmakers. Okay. It's kind of a long... Can I get that? Uh, the Rolling Stones, England's Newest Hitmakers? Imagine going to the record store asking for that. Well, you know exactly what's happened. They went to the record store and asked for The Rolling Stones. Right. So it's basically still self-titled. They moved away from blues and went straight to rock and roll and the rest is history. The Stones toured extensively and released albums nearly every year from then until the early 1980s. And I actually made a list here. Two in 63, three in 64, one each in 66, 67, 68, 69, 71, 72, 73, 74, none in 75, 76, none in 77, 78, none in 79, 80, 81, none in 82, and 83. So pretty much every damn year in a couple at, at the beginning. All right. It was this period the band had the greatest commercial success. Imagine that. With a few shakeups, the core is still being Jaggers and Richard. Trouble was in paradise, however, and the rift that had been brewing between the two reached ahead. Jagger did some solo work, and he was becoming disinterested with the Stones, and that didn't sit well with Richards. It hit rock bottom when Jagger refused to tour to support 1986's Dirty Work. They went inactive, but didn't break up, and in early 89, after being inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Jaggers and Richard played nice and put their bullshit aside. See? That's not copy-paste. <laughs> they started working on new material, and as expected, started touring again, pacing themselves rather than burning out. In the meantime, there was, like always, some personnel changes, and Jagger was releasing solo material. They celebrated their 50th anniversary in 2012 and started their 50 and counting tour with no signs of slowing down and are still active today, charging 300 bucks a ticket. You People pay it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't either, but... I would sit outside the arena and listen to it through the walls. The Rolling Stones released 25 studio albums spawning 120 singles. They've been around for fucking ever, of course. That's like six more than you and I have. Well, yeah. Ruby Tuesday is a Jagger and Richards pen song that was released as a double A side with Let's Spend the Night Together and on the U.S. version of 1967's Between the Buttons. Apparently in the U.K. they didn't put singles on their albums. Really? I don't know why. Let's just take a listen to it. Well, nothing's lost But such a cause So the song's about a free-spirited woman, not the overrated buffet burger joint, because oh. not a fan. Never been to one. Don't waste your time. Go to Red Robin. It's way better. Okay. Per Keith Richards, it's about his former girlfriend, Linda, Linda Keith. Either way, it's considered a classic Stone song. That being said, I usually skip the song as it sounds whiny to me. There's so many other rock songs that the Stones put out that Ruby Tuesday is just kind of like a slowing you down kind of... It's like in, in Empire. When... In this, they talk about the middle part of the movie when he goes into the dark side cave, how it kind of grinds the movie to a halt and slows it down. Mm -hmm. This song grinds an album to a halt and slows the whole thing My down. My guess is if they do it in concert, it's that point where Mick's just like winded and he's like, okay, guys, we need a break. Slow it down. <laughs> Probably. It's not horrible, but it's not the Stones that I listen to. Right. So what do you got? I guess I never realized this was a Stone song. 
Shut up. I, I really didn't. It's a decent song. Nothing extraordinary, but so much better than my Tuesday pick that, you know. <laughs> I'm a little shocked you didn't pick this one, to be quite honest. So it must be early Stones. I've heard the song for years, and I never connected the two, and I don't know why. He's got such a unique voice, though, man. How, I, that surprises me. So what do you have for Wednesday? All right, so I have Waiting for Wednesday by Lisa Loeb. Shut up. What? Every time I say Lisa Loeb, somebody's like, you like Lisa Loeb? No, dude, I fucking love Lisa Loeb. <laughs> she was goddamn gorgeous. She the, still is. Those uh, With those, like, tiger tiger skin glasses. Yeah. Take the glasses off, she's still good looking, but honestly, the glasses make the girl. Yeah, absolutely. So Tales is an album by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories, released in 1995 by Geffen Records. This is the album that had the song Waiting for Wednesday on it. And also had earlier versions of the songs It's Over, Snow Day, Do You Sleep, and Hurricane. Originally appeared on Lisa's previous studio album, Purple Tape. The album was well received by the public and it was certified gold by the RIAA on December 1st, 1995. Critics were also favorable to the album with Ken Tucker of Entertainment Weekly in particular noting that Loeb has an undeniable gift for creating an air of intimacy and vulnerability, which may well be enough for Stay fans looking for additional doses of contemplative melancholy. Let's see what, what we're waiting for. Bet you it's Wednesday. So Lisa Ann Loeb is an American singer-songwriter, producer, touring artist, actress, author, and philanthropist who started her career with the platinum-selling number one hit song, Stay, I Miss You, from the film Reality Bites. The first number one single for an artist without a recording contract. Her, first, her studio albums include two back-to-back -back albums and were certified gold. These were Tales and the Grammy-nominated Firecracker. Loeb has released nine studio albums to date with 2017's Lullaby Girl, her latest offering. The song itself is amazing, mostly because I like her style of music. Her vocals are so nice, and whether she's singing live or recorded, it's pretty much the same thing. Really? Oh yeah. She has such a clear voice, and it's such a great sound as well. The song is classic Loeb, and she's talking about how hard and bad things are, but yet you kind of feel good about it. I can't explain it either. You know, and I'll tell you what, I bought the Reality Bite soundtrack just for Stay. Oh, that's a great song. Because the movie is horrible. The rest of the soundtrack is pretty goddamn terrible. But I think Tempted, that song by Squeeze, you know, Tempted by Fruit yeah. of Another, that is the literally the only other good song on the CD. Really? Yes, it is an awful CD. So we're not doing that one for our soundtracks. That's my next one, dude. <laughs> okay, well, I guess I'm going to phone this one in. <laughs> but um, no, I guess she was discovered singing in the shower. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess it was kind of like... That fucking creeper was in her shower. No, it was in an apartment building. I guess you could kind of hear it through the vents or something. Oh, okay. And they were like, hey, this chicken 3E sounds really good. And I'm guessing they waited until she was dressed to knock, but I might not have, but whatever. Um, if you knew what was behind the door, you might not have. Well, yeah, no, I, I wrote here too, she's got such a pretty voice. I mean, yeah. really, it's a pretty voice. The cat eye glasses, again, in the videos, which is drool-worthy. Total crush in the 90s, and the song's good too. So... <laughs> So that's what I got for that. All right, so what do you got for your Wednesday? For Wednesday, we have simply Wednesday by Jimmy Eat World. Yeah. Now, Jimmy Eat World is an American rock band that formed in 1993. Jim Adkins and Zach Lind were friends since preschool. They recruited Tom Linton and Mitch Porter to give music a try and form the band. 
The name came from an argument between Linton's younger brothers, Jim and Ed. They fought often, and Ed, to get revenge, drew a crayon picture of Jim shoving, Jim shoving the whole planet in his mouth, captioned it, Jimmy Eat World. Nice. That's kind of hilarious, actually. Yeah, makes me feel better about the name, honestly. Mm-hmm. So, they released their debut album, 1994, self-titled Jimmy Eat World, that was a punk rock-sounding album and really didn't do much of anything. They started ramping up their touring and finally signed with Capitol Records, but not before Porter left and was replaced by Rick Birch. They continued touring and recording are still technically active. There's nothing really special to say about them. There's been no band shakeups. There's no dead hookers, no drugs, nothing like that. I mean, they're just a band that started. Jimmy Eat World has released nine studio albums since 1993 and has spawned 16 singles. Let's go ahead and just take a quick listen to Wednesday. Now, Wednesday is a song off of their 1994 debut album, Jimmy Eat World. The song, as far as I can tell, isn't really about anything at all. I was looking for Wednesday songs, and I came across this one, and I kind of liked it, actually. Considering the only other Jimmy Eat World song I've ever heard that was ever played was the song The Middle, I knew the band, but I thought I knew the band, but I was wrong. This was part of some of their older stuff that was more like Offspring. Yeah, very punk rock. It was, and I like Offspring a lot. So this really, I really enjoy this one. The album is out of print, and per AV Club's Jason Heller, there's a good reason for it. It's not terrible, but it doesn't represent what the band would become. Which is true, because if you listen to the middle, it's more pop rock, more radio-friendly, where this would probably not go on the radio. No. I like the song. I wish the newer stuff would have stayed more punk instead of the mainstream neuter, like neutered bullshit that's on the radio now. Again, too, I mean, I'm not going to go out and pick up their old album because of this one song but I might get this one song because I really enjoyed it. Okay. So, like I said, it's punk-inspired, obviously. Not about the day of the week, but more about a girl who needs to get up and move because it's almost 2.30. That's pretty much all the lyrics say. Get up Wednesday, it's almost 2.30. I wish I could stay in bed until 2.30. Yeah. Never says if it's morning or afternoon. Could be 2.30 in the morning. Get the hell out. Or it could be 2.30 in the afternoon. That could make a whole different story, depending on what it is. Exactly. Either 2.30 in the afternoon is like checkout time. Yeah. 2.30 in the morning is like, okay, bitch, we're done. Get out. There's 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 cab fare on the nightstand. Get the hell out. You exactly. Know? Or is it 2.30 in the afternoon? It's like, bitch, wake up. Go to work. It's like a coyote ugly thing. Get off, Marb. <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan of this song, but I would be willing to listen to something else. So. Fair enough. That's what I had to say. All right. So what do we got for Thursday? Well, we have... Aptly named Thursday by Morphine. So Thursday by Morphine, another great track from their brilliant second album, Cure for Pain. It's a wonderful story song telling the tale of a pool player, 'er ne'er-do-well, and his illicit affair with a married woman. The band provide just the right urgent backing to Mark Sandman's breathless rush through the story. His repeated words and cagey delivery convey the mood perfectly as we move from a casual game of pool to a motel across the street to the news that the husband knows. Dana Coley's sax work is particularly fine, moving from sultry to alarming at the t- as the tale demands. Let's take a shot of morphine and listen to Thursday. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday in the afternoon For a couple of beers Then a game of pool Not that I would ever take a shot of morphine Unless prescribed by a doctor Unless you're in the hospital, I suppose Right 
So Morphine was an American alternative rock group formed by Mark Sandman, Dana Colley, and Jerome Dupree, or du yeah, Dupree in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1989. After five successful albums and extensive touring, they disbanded in 1999 after frontman Sandman died of a heart attack. Again, death will put the end to a band. Too much Morphine? It, uh, it didn't really say, it just said he had a heart attack. Oh, okay. But founding members have reformed into the band Vapors of Morphine, maintaining much of the founding members... Are much of the original style and sound. Morphine combined blues and jazz elements with more traditional rock arrangements, giving the band an unusual sound. Sandman sang distinctively in a deep, laid-back croon, and his songwriting featured a prominent beat influence. The band themselves coined the label Low Rock to describe their music, which involved a minimalist, low-end sound that could have easily become a gimmick, a power trio but not built around the sound of an electric guitar. Instead, Morphine expanded its offbeat vocabulary on each album. The band enjoyed positive critical appraisal, but met with mixed results commercially. In the United States, the band was embraced and promoted by the indie rock community, including public and college radio stations and MTV's 120 Minutes, which the band once guest hosted, but received little support from commercial rock radio and other music television programs. This limited their mainstream exposure and support in their home country. Well, internationally, they enjoyed high-profile success, especially in Belgium, Portugal, France, and Australia. Interesting crew of yeah, countries. Yeah, it's, it's a nice little... But they, those four or five, you know, when you throw New Zealand in there, they kind of all go if for the same if thing. If it's not the U.S. or U.K., it's New Zealand and the rest of them. Yeah, exactly. So Morphine gave us five studio albums between 1992 and 2000. The song itself has a definite alt sound and feel to it. I mean, there's no other way to put it. This particular song sounds like they're running... The music a little slower than it was originally recorded at, especially in the beginning of the song. It kind of it was kind of a slow build. drag build. It's a song about a guy messing around with a married woman, and they went a little too far, and now he has to run. The song itself has a bit of a bluesy vibe to it, which is okay, but overall I wasn't a fan. Okay. Um, it just seemed like a bunch of guys that were just jamming together, and somehow it came together as a song. Like, you know, the whole... A million monkeys with a million keyboards will eventually pound out Shakespeare or whatever. Right. It's kind of what this band was for me. Wikipedia actually calls them experimental. I would say that's a failed experiment. Fair enough. I did not care for it. All right, so what do you got next? All right, so I think my Thursday song is going to be better than yours. Okay. I've got Thursday's Child by David Bowie. All right. So we just talked about him last week, so I might skip through a little bit of this here. David Robert Jones, better known as David Bowie, is a Brit singer, songwriter, actor. Started in elementary school with music with the recorder, just like most of us did. Yep. He was also getting noticed for his dancing at age nine. Teachers started noticing his interpretations were vividly artistic and his poise astonishing for a child at okay. nine. I mean, granted, it wasn't like the classical people that we had that were like, right. by nine, and it was 17 languages. 17 languages and wrote, th wrote three sonatas and all. Exactly. <laughs> so it was also then when his music ta musical tastes were teased and, and started with his dad getting him a whole bunch of American 45s, including Elvis, the Platters, and Little Richard. Elvis and Little Richard were the biggest influences, however, after hearing the latter, Bowie once stated that he heard God. Okay. Yeah. He also got into jazz with his half-brother Terry, and shortly after he was gifted a Grafton saxophone and took lessons, started a band in 62 named the Conrads with a K, and then played guitar rock. He was going by Davy with a Y or an IE Jones at the same time was causing a problem with the monkeys, so he changed it up. 
Um, he let out his 1967 album, David Bowie, which didn't really do too much. He took time to focus on his image and recording and followed up with 1969's David Bowie's Space Oddity, which broke him into the top 20 in the UK and the US. He went through a few relationships that each granted him something new, be it newfound outlook or his image and dance skills. Little did the world know, however, that his biggest and most well-known image was just about to begin in the stage show that followed it with the release of 1972's The Rise and the Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. The shows were strange, sexual, but at the same time not, but the fans loved it. So did Bowie, enjoying the breakout of his normal humdrum to become Ziggy. But like all things, it had to end. His retirement was done in 1973, and he tried to move on from the Ziggy persona, but the image was left indelibly in people's minds. The mid to late 1970s brought more jazz rock sound, but with the 80s came pop, and he definitely changed with the times. The 90s was when electronic was getting big, and that too, citing jazz, soul, and hip-hop. He rolled in with that too. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the class of 96 that included Gladys Knight and the Pips, Pink Floyd, and Jefferson Airplane. He continued touring until 2006 when he announced at the Grammys he was taking a year off with no touring or albums. However, it wouldn't be until 2013 that his next album, The Next Day, was released. Couple side projects, including writing songs for a SpongeBob Broadway musical. <laughs> yeah, no shit. And a couple of albums were released before, on January 10th of 2016, he passed away from liver cancer. David Bowie released 27 albums, spawning 128 singles. Wow. Yeah. Thursday's Child is a single off of 1999's Hours. Let's go ahead and take a listen to our day sake. So per Bowie at the VH1 Storyteller Show, when I was about 14, Eartha Kitt and D.H. Lawrence were some of my favorite bedtime reading. Not just my bedtimes, the truth be known. I'd see, And I'd seen this paperback in W.H. Smith's of Eartha Kitt Life Story, and she was standing quite sexily by a tree with the fields in the background, and it was called Thursday's Child. And that stayed with me since I was 14. I don't know why, but it was just kind of bubbled up the other month, and that's when we wrote this. He also added... This song, I might point out, is not actually about Eartha Kitt. Even though it's newer Bowie, it's a great song to chill with. I mean, and really, it is a very chill song. Oh, yeah. I, I like it. I mean, I'm personally a fan of, like, kind of more the rockin' Bowie, like the Let's Dance and such, but right. this is still a decent song. You know, and I said, I, I don't know why, but something about this song just hooked me. I listened to the hope and fear in this song. I can't really even tell you what I think it's about, except looking forward to better and better things. Now, I don't get the third... I wrote that I didn't get the Thursday Child's reference, but you just explained it, so... That's why we compliment each other. Exactly. So, you know, I want to go back and listen to the song again and again and again. It's just... It's... You know, and it's going to be one of those where you got to be in the right mood, because if I'm in a... If I'm in a, you know, like a heavy, like... This will sedate you. Yes. I mean, it really will. So, unless you're in a energetic energetic mood don't listen to it right because it will put you to sleep i think mm -hmm. so let's move on to friday all right so here's what i'm going to tell you i am going to agree that your thursday song was better but i'm also going to put out there that my friday song is better maybe than your friday song but anyway that's just my opinion that's a good and fair opinion it may be wrong but it's a fair opinion so friday i'm in love is a song by british rock band the cure it is the second single taken from the album wish 1992 and was a worldwide hit 
It won the award for European Viewer's Choice for Best Music Video at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. Robert Smith, the song's primary writer, described it in 1992 as both a throw-your-hands-in-the-air, let's-get-happy kind of record, and a very naive, happy type of pop song. No, when you're throwing your hands in the air, is it like you just don't care? I would assume it would be, yes. Okay, just making sure. So, during the writing process, Robert Smith became convinced that he had inadvertently stolen the chord progression from somewhere. And this led him to a state of paranoia, where he called everyone he could think of and played the song for them, asking if they had heard it before. None of them had, and Smith realized that the melody was indeed his. It's true, you know. Friday, I'm in love. The Cure are an English rock band formed in Crawley, West Sussex in 1976. The band has experienced several lineup changes with vocalist, guitarist, and principal songwriter Robert Smith being the only constant member. The Cure first began releasing music in the late 1970s with their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, in 1979. This, along with several early singles, placed the band at, as part of the post-punk and new wave movements that had sprung up in the wake of the punk rock revolution in the United Kingdom. During the early 1980s, the band's increasingly dark and tormented music, as well as Smith's stage look, was a staple of the emerging style of the music known as gothic rock. Following the release of the album Pornography in 1982, the band's future was uncertain. Smith was keen to move past the gloomy reputation his band had acquired, introducing a greater pop sensibility into the band's music. Songs such as Let's Go to Bed, Just Like Heaven, Love Song, and Friday I'm in Love, aided the band in receiving commercial popularity. The band are estimated to have sold roughly 27 million records as of 2004 and have released 13 studio albums, 10 EPs, and over 30 singles to date. Now the song itself is right up there against the best of all time, in my opinion. I really love this song. Not a lot to say. The song kind of speaks for itself. It's the cure. I mean, what is there to say, really? I mean, I'm not a huge fan of this particular one, and it's, it's okay. Um, I prefer some of their poppy stuff, like Love Song, for example. It's right. just, there's something about the instrumental work on that one I like better. It's The Cure. It's okay. I really don't have a whole lot to say about it. Fair enough. What do you got for Friday? So, Friday, I actually changed my mind. I'm going to talk about a different song. What? The song I'm talking about is Friday by Rebecca Black. Wait a second. You're throwing me a curveball here? I'll just wait. Rebecca, Rebecca Black is an American YouTube personality and singer. Finger quotes. Starting in seventh grade, she joined the musical theater program as she felt it was meant to be. She dropped out of school to be homeschooled because she needed to focus on her career, which school is your fucking career. Right. And she wanted to avoid being taunted by her former classmates. And based on how much she sucks, I would actually sign with her classmates. She also claimed that she was failing English because of her busy schedule. You are in high school. That is your schedule. Anyhow. All right. I can't keep this up. Fuck Rebecca Black. The song is horrible. I'm not doing this. I did not choose that song. Oh, thank God. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? The actual song is Last Friday Night by Katy Perry. Catherine Elizabeth Hudson, better known as Katy Perry, is an American singer and songwriter. Her family was musical from when she was a child, but it wasn't pop or rock, but rather religious music. She wanted to be a, like her older sister, so started taking vocal lessons around age nine and singing in her parents' church. She was given a guitar when she turned 13 and performed her own written material publicly while taking dance lessons to be the complete package. 
She got her GED when she was 15 and dropped out of high school to pursue a musical career. She signed with Red Hill Records and released her debut album, Katie Hudson, in 2001, which is a gospel album that was critically praised but sold poorly. Less than 200 copies were sold worldwide before the label shut down. Wow. I wonder how many of those were to her family. And I wonder how much that album's worth right now. Oh, yeah, probably a ton. Yeah. So, undeterred, she made the switch from gospel to secular music and was picked up by Capitol Records, which led to her breakthrough in 2008 with One of the Boys. She's been touring and recording ever since, never looking back. In her spare time, she's also appeared as a judge in the reality singing competitions. She's played Super Bowl, and she's also worked with other, other artists on their own material. She obvi- she's obviously here to stay, and I can't say that's a bad thing because she's definitely not hard on the eyes. Although, I have to say she looks way better with longer hair. Because she's got that pixie do right now, which doesn't really okay, work. Okay, I, I haven't seen it, but... But I'll... that's just me. So, Katy Perry has released five albums that have spawned 28 singles. Last Friday Night, also known as TGIF, is obviously one of them off of 2010's Teenage Dream. Let's go ahead and take a listen to Last Friday Night. Last Friday totally had you going there didn't i <laughs> i was like what the fuck i don't even know what the fuck he's talking about oh you knew that song too though no well i probably do but it, oh. t- it totally took me off see i wouldn't <laughs> i have to keep you on your toes occasionally <laughs> i i guess so the album or cd was released and actually scented like cotton candy i'm not making this up really yes they you, scented... it was your copy scented like cotton candy yeah okay of course i <laughs> and um I, I'm not even making that up either. It was scented. It was. I've never ever seen that before because usually it just smells like plastic and, and sadness. <laughs> so per Katie, plastic and all the little children sweat. Right. So per Perry, the song was semi-autobiographical, with the exception being a few things such as the threesome. Most of the song is actual truth, apart from the menage a trois. Unfortunately, her words. Unfortunately, but yes, streaking in the park. That's what we did. So we had to write a song about it the next day. Sadly, I was nowhere near that park because it happened. It would have been awesome. Just saying. I enjoy this song. It's entertaining. It makes me think about those raucous times. Then you wake up the next day going, what the fuck did I just do? Yeah. You know, it's like the hangover, but not as epically bad. And the video for it is like 80s awesomeness. I I really enjoy this song. All right. So it's a song about a blacked out Friday night. I mean, it honestly sounds like a lot of fun, especially if I'm doing all these things with Katy Perry. <laughs> Because, honestly, she kissed a girl and she thought she liked it. So, mix those together, make me 25 again, I'm totally in. That said, it's a fun pop song, and I'm I, I'm not impressed by it, and I'm not disturbed by it. It's just what it is. It's it's not bad. Okay. So, I still think my Friday song is better. All right, that's perfectly. It's better, definitely better than my first Friday one that I was messing with you on. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to agree with that. Oh, my God. No, seriously. We're going to YouTube that as soon as we're done. Okay. So for Saturday, for my wrap-up, I'm going to do Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting by Elton John. Good choice. So Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting is a song originally recorded by British musician Elton John. John composed it with his longtime songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin. It was released on John's 1973 studio album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And as the first single, the song is one of John's most critically and commercially successful singles. A number seven hit record in the United Kingdom... It has been covered by Wasp, 
Flotsam and Jetsam, Nickelback with Kid Rock and Dimebag Darrow, Queen, The Who, Fall Out Boy, and several others. Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting is a lively throwback to early rock and roll with a glam edge. The lyrics discuss a night out on town in which the narrator's plans to get about as oiled as a diesel train. Toppin has said that the song was meant to be an American rock and roll song set in Britain. It was inspired by his raucous teenage days and, in particular, the fistfights in his local pub, the Aston Arms in Market Rosin. Well, let's do a little fighting. So Sir Elton Hercules John, born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, is an English singer, pianist, and composer. At the age of 15, with the help of his mother and stepfather, Reginald Dwight became a weekend pianist at a nearby pub, the Northwood Hills Hotel, playing Thursday to Sunday nights, known simply as Reggie. He played a range of popular standards, including songs by Jim Reeves and Ray Charles, as well as songs he had written himself. A stint with a short-lived group called the Corvettes rounded out his time. In 1962, Dwight and his friend formed a band called Bluesology. By day, he ran errands for a music publishing company. He divided his nights between solo gigs at a London hotel bar and working with Bluesology. By the mid-1960s, Bluesology was backing touring American soul and R&B musicians like the Isley Brothers, Major Lance, and Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. In 1966, the band became musician Long John Baldry's supporting band and played 16 times at the Marquee Club. In 1967, Dwight answered an advertisement in the British magazine New Musical Express placed by Ray Williams, then the A&R manager for Liberty Records. At their first meeting, Williams gave Dwight an unopened envelope of lyrics written by Bernie Taupin, who had answered the same ad. Dwight wrote music for the lyrics and then posted it to Taupin, beginning a partnership that still continues. When the two first met in 1967, they recorded what would become the first Elton John, Bernie Taupin song, Scarecrow. Six months later, Dwight was going by the name Elton John in homage to two members of Bluesology, saxophonist Elton Dean and vocalist Long John Baldry. His name was legally changed to Elton Hercules John on January 7th, 1972. The song itself is just a lot of fun. This is some of the most upbeat Elton John music that you will ever get. I think everyone should listen to this song. I mean... Everybody knows this song. Oh yeah, there's absolutely. not a whole lot to talk about. So no, what, what are your this thoughts? is this is a classic Elton John piece, and I, you can read this when I'm done. I'm gonna read this exactly how I wrote. If this piece doesn't get you fired up for doing something on a Saturday night, then you are truly dead in the pants. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a great song. Um, I have always enjoyed this one. It's one of his best songs, actually, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. All right, what are you going to round us out with? All right, my Saturday is going to be... I was torn on this one, but the one... I was thinking about Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers just because it's just a fun song. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, but I decided to go with Saturday Night Special by Skinner. That's another good song. Now, another week we're talking about Skinner. We're not going to go over the band info again as it's like beating a dead horse. I think we've talked about Skinner almost as much as we've talked about the Beatles. Uh, we have gave we gave a history about them on episode 63 for Animals, 64 for My List, 67 for Days and Confused, and now 60 and this one, or 65 for Days and Confused, and now 67 for Days of the Week. If you are not listening, 
you and you don't know Skinner by now, you're not paying attention. Agreed. So, fine. Short, short version. The short, short, short version. All right. Skinner's American Southern rock band that formed in 1964 named as a parody on the dig of the gym teacher Leonard Skinner. Okay. They had a huge run until a plane crash took the lives of key members and almost folded. After a hiatus, they returned with Ronnie Van Sant, the brother of the former lead singer Ronnie, um, Don, uh, Johnny, and are stronger than ever. They announced in January they're about to start their farewell tour on May 4th of 2018. Check, 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 and check. Short, short, short version. Yeah. So, Skinner's released 14 studio albums that have spawned only 30 singles, which actually surprises me. Yeah, they, because they got a lot, lot of good, good music. music. Yeah, absolutely. Saturday Night Special is a single off of 1975's Nothing Fancy, spelled N-U-T-H-I-N apostrophe. Of course it is. Let's let's just go ahead and take a quick listen. So like many southern rock songs, it tells a story and is inclined to try to give you a lesson. The song talks about separate incidences on how cheaply procured handguns can be part of an impromptu or impulsive violent end. Gary Rossington stated on a radio interview that the song was inspired by a real-life poker game that ended up with one of the players being shot. Wow. As if it was the first time. I mean, come on. How many Old West people were shot oh, over? Yeah. I mean, oh, what the hell was it? Buffalo Bill, was it? That was, Wild Bill Hillcock. That's it. I know it was a bill. Yeah. I just watched Silence of the Lambs, so that's why Buffalo Bill came out. Okay. So, in any respect, there's another verse that talks about that could either be interpreted as a couple different ways. Either it's a home invasion or a guy's confronting a, another guy who's cheating with the spouse. Either way, someone meets a bad end because, finger quotes, handguns are made for killing. They ain't no good for nothing else. I personally disagree with that sentiment, but being as how this is not a show about rights or politics, we're not going to go into that. All right. It's about the music, and this is a classic Skinner song that, despite the topic, is a good one to listen to. It's got great instrumentals, great vocals, and I enjoy the production value in the song itself. Nothing else to say? All right. I said the guitar, as I always say, the guitars, man. It's the guitars. And the guitars of Leonard Skinner catch my ear every time. It's just a great song. However, this is why I would never cheat with a married woman. Well, I wouldn't cheat anyway, but I don't feel like getting shot full of 38 holes. You know, and I think now, it's... Now, do they mean literally 38 or 38, no, like, caliber? You, yeah, if you watch the the lyrics, it's it's 38 caliber. But either way, I don't want to get shot 38 times either. You know. I think once would be more than enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's great Southern rock music. It's Skinnered, man. Freebird! Like, you know, Freebird is probably... I, I like the song, don't get me wrong, but it's so overplayed and over-memed. Oh, yeah. That it's just it's kind of annoying. You know, it's it's like their version of Stairway. Yeah, kind of. Because or Rock and Roll All Night. It's the song that everybody fucking knows. Yeah. And if you say that song, or if you say Skinner, that's the first song you think of, or Sweet Home Alabama. One of those two. However, I grew up with Skinner because of my dad, which is part because of the reason. Because my dad. Well, yeah. Did you just get Southern all a of a sudden? A little bit, apparently. I'm just looking for my uh my uh Southern Cross. Um, no, but. I listen to a lot of it. I've heard a lot of their stuff from old to new, and some of their newest stuff is actually really good, oh, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just unfortunate they're being pigeonholed as a one-act, one-song act. Yeah. So. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. 
if you guys want to reach out to us and let us know if you like this Hell episode. pause on that, buddy. We got a trivia question to finish. Oh, yeah. Trivia. <laughs> All right. So let's do the reminder of the question. Must what? we? <laughs> Otherwise, I can just say something. You can say, you're right. What is the date, full date, day, month, and year that MTV went live? Bonus point if you can name the very first video song and artist that was played. Okay. First of all, I would like to point out that the question itself is bullshit. No, I can tell you the year. I think I can tell you the month, but the day? Fine. I'll get, if you get two out of three, that ain't bad. Okay. It was 1981. Okay. That, that I know for sure. You got one. I want to say May. Well, you already got it wrong. Okay. So, uh, first video was Video Killed the Radio Star by, by the Buggles. All right. So, it is August 1st. Oh, August 1st. Really? 1981, which actually is my dad's birthday. Okay, maybe Which that's is, why you remember it, but I don't think anybody... Most people remember that one, so actually that's a wash for you. So we're going to go, you're going to be 20 and 19. Okay, but if you're listening out there, back me up on this, people. Not that I'm going to make Lou change the, the the whole thing, but how many people knew that before Lou told us that, that it was August 1st, 1981? I'm just curious. Write in, let us know. What do, we now, think, what do we think we are? Alice Cooper's, you know, tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we were Alice Cooper, it would be live and people could email us and we could talk about oh, it. Oh, this is true. Or live tweet. Or live tweet, yeah. So anyway. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. If you want to reach out to us, let us know if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, feel free to do that. There are several ways you can do that. First, through email. You can find us at eclecticmusicproject at gmail.com. Or for a short time yet, you can use musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. Either way, we'll get that we'll get that message and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. On Facebook, you can find us at Musically Challenged Podcast or at POI Network. And of course, our third and final way is the Twitter. And that's if you want to go ahead and send us some love or some hate, tell us what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, or if you want to send us a playlist of ten different songs, ten different artists with a theme, without a theme, whatever. You could do so at mcpodcast17, and that is at sign, that little squiggly A thing. Yeah. mcpodcast17. We'll see what you got there and go from there. And just so you guys know, I, I was, I've was i been listening to this for the last few weeks that we've been doing this. That's not the only place you can send us a, a, a list, a listener list. You can you can do that at any of the emails, on Facebook. Um, so, yeah, with that, let's say thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.